it's quite a long time ago since I first started writing about uh, running. Uh, I've always been interested in running. I've been not very good at it for um, for two, oh, nearly three decades now. Um, but I've always really been uh, fascinated by it. And when I finished the previous book, um, it was like... It's a corny cliche, but it was like getting to the end of the marathon. The idea of doing more of that, I was just tired out and had had enough. But I wanted to keep writing, so I started, I started blogging. I started writing a, a blog um, that I very cleverly entitled Psychogeography, with a J-O-G in the middle, psychogeography.com. <coughs> and um, I started that on the day that I got a marathon place to, uh, for the London Marathon to run for Asthma UK. So I didn't know what I was doing. I knew that I wanted to write about running, so I started doing that. And then by about the third or the fourth blog, I um, came in from a run, and I, I knew that I wanted to write something about Oscar Wilde. But I didn't know what, but I was sure it would work. And so literally about the third or the fourth blog entry I did was about Oscar Wilde and the treadmill. And it was, it was 800 words that I looked at very briefly yesterday with some concern. Um, uh, and then it just sort of grew and grew. And really that the whole book came out of this idea. Um, came out of this idea that there was something strange and wonderful about, about running that wasn't really uh, being explored in, in um, many running books. It's the cover. The cover is, has, has been its beautiful design. Um, I had a, a little say in it, not very much. Um, a couple of the things inside the human body um, are uh, they change because they uh, they change them so that they would include things that are actually in the book itself. So, um, but the cover was very deliberately um, a cross between a nature writing book and a and a, and a running book uh, because that's what I was trying to do. That there, there, there are so many nature writing books about uh, for the walkers, and I was convinced that there were that the, that the runners deserved one. Um, as well, because it's a genre that I was really fascinated by myself. So, uh, with my skills, because I'm a, a Victorian lecturer, inevitably um, I was going to be writing about Victorian literature and running, but I really did not have any idea how this was going to work. And for years, actually, I struggled to explain to people why I was why I was doing this and what the connections were. But I'll come come to that shortly. Uh, in uh, one of the readings. So I'm going to do about three readings, each of them are about five or ten minutes each. Um, So the blog, um, when I was writing the blog, I didn't really understand what I was uh, doing and it certainly was never going to be a book until until this happened. And this is the introduction of the book. It's called The Prying Sprite of Peckham Rye. I am lost on Peckham Rye. Mm. I'm running a seven-mile lasso a few miles out a big circle around the common and the same miles back. I like this distance. I can just about get away with not taking any water and I don't have to worry too much about food before, during or after the run. But I am done in. It is that awful day when the plane trees seem to give off all of their pollen in one great gasp. Plane tree pollen particles are obese compared to those of the other plants and trees. Londoners have to wander round for the entire day, gouging it from their eyes. It's nasty stuff. It sticks to my face and it gathers in the creases of my arms and neck. What havoc it must be causing in my lungs, I can only guess. 
because they hum and they whine like a legion of wasps trapped in a bell jar. Despite this, I am enjoying the run, and I love coming to Peckham Rye because it seems to possess a kind of magic that makes the pasts, both real and imaginary, very present. As a child, the poet and seer William Blake had visions of angels in these trees. Today, jewels of broken glass are strewn across the pavements, and there are queues outside the locksmiths because there have been riots. The sun warms the earth beneath my feet. Everything looks saturated with pigment, and if I can keep going long and steady enough, a wave of ecstasy will soon break over me. And when that comes, the burrs, the static, and the clamour of the everyday will be washed clean. Virginia Woolf called them moments of being, those few seconds when we are only ourselves, and our senses reverberate with the pleasure of the present. It is when what is buried beneath the down of the everyday becomes immediate in a way that is raw and urgent and overwhelming. It is 2011, and although I've been running badly for years, I've suddenly found myself able to access much longer distances. So every day I run and I run and I run. Compelled to do so, but unsure why, I don't think I have paused to consider it in any detail until today and my encounter with a sprite of Peckham Rye. Yet here I am, many miles from home, with nothing on my feet, whispering along on the grass in the summer sun. With pizzicato steps, I continue along the worn pathway. I am now skirting the edge of the rye, an unfenced enclosure, centuries old, that has withstood waves of suburban expansion in South London. It is ringed by estate agents, petrol stations, 18th century villas and post-war council blocks built on the bones of bombed houses. There are whitewashed walls, garlanded with ribbons of razor wire and from the high fences, giraffe heads of, uh, the giraffe heads of CCTV cameras peer down from their pens, glancing from side to side. Traffic and concrete and plane trees to my right, tame, trim, grassland to my left. Unlike the young William Blake, I am not expecting wraiths and angels, but as an eight-year-old in 1766, he had walked here on a summer's day from his home in Broad Street in Soho. The little rogue had wandered for eight or ten miles and must have been exhausted on reaching the climb of Dulwich Hill. The vision that he saw in the trees became the core of his beliefs that ran against the grain in the high age of reason in the 18th century. It was the beginning of a lifelong commitment to the ideal, to worlds above, beyond and beneath, and it formed the basis of his character as a mystic, and two, it was the beginning of a life lived on the very edges of sanity. From angels to devils, the novelist Muriel Spark used to describe, used the rye as a stage on which her demonic anti-hero, Dougal Douglas, played puppet master to those around him, charming them into sexual liaisons, immoral behaviour and murder before disappearing entirely. All of this is mixing in my blood, the magic, the alchemy, the feel of the place firing up through the 200,000 subcutaneous receptors in my feet. The smells and the colours seem overwhelming and the experience feels transformative, even shamanic. I'm in the final few miles of the run. My body swings back and forth to the rhythm of its own movement. I've made it to one of the quiet side streets off the park where approaching me is a young preschool boy, the Sprite, a few paces ahead of his mother. A credit to his parents, he moves aside to let me pass, and I smile. As I do, he squints, the sun hard in his face, eyeing me. He calls out, to his, his, he calls out 
Mom! His phrasing is musical, like he is singing the square root symbol. What's that man running away from? I splutter a laugh and try to select from my drop-down menu of clever responses, but nothing comes. I'm already gone, so I quickly shout over my shoulder, Old age! But the question clings like chewing gum. I've heard it before. I'm sure I've heard it somewhere before. For the rest of the run, and for hours, even days afterwards, I think about that question. I manage to come up with some answers. I'm running away from my asthma, from my emails, from my responsibilities, from middle age, from my chair, from my desk, from my chores. I'm pleased with the benign nature of these causes. I don't mind being their quarry because I think I understand them. I'm on the run from my genetic inheritance too, I think. My father was not at all active, and although he boasted that he was as strong as an ox, he didn't even make it close to retirement. In his early 50s, he entered into a seemingly constant cycle of strokes and heart attacks. He was without speech for the last 10 years of his life. He died when he was just 62, but seemed impossibly older than that the last time I saw him. In my early life, he had been either a figure of indulgence or violence and unpredictable rage, so I never got to know him then. By my teens, he was practically mute. His inability to communicate made him all the more unknowable to to me. His character and personality hidden behind a gravestone facade that that could barely express the nuances between joy and sadness. His most common emotion was that of abject frustration at the crossed wires between what was in his head and what came out of his mouth. A man who had written hundreds of poems, played chess for his country, reduced by his mid-fifties to someone who expressed childish wonder at the magical abilities of a TV remote control. Though I try not to think about it, this future is surely one of the things I'm running away from. As time went on, other darker motivations for running began to come into focus, and I needed to understand them too. But without realising, the sprite of Peckham Rye had set me off on a journey that would occupy me for years. The writing of this book became a series of adventures to, among other places, a rain-drenched and precarious mountaintop in the Lake District, Venice's crumbling city streets, the Redwood Forests of California, the most advanced running clinic and laboratory in Boston, and to Michigan, where I met researchers at the forefront of advances into environmental psychology. This book is about the abundance of amazing things that I have learned about the body, the landscape, and the ways that we cut through it when we run. It is about how running has become a part of who I am, and how it makes my life sustainable. It keeps me going because I don't want to be without the uncluttered disorder of the natural world, and experiencing my body while I'm in it. I don't want to miss out on its transformational potential, and I cannot bear the thought of forgetting what it is that I am. Whatever it is that running and the environment continue to give back to me, it helps me to concentrate on the things that I know matter most. It also helps me to make the kinds of decisions that I want to continue to make. It has become a kind of playful overturning of the named labelled, directed and focused life that someone of my age ought to be leading. It allows me to step off life's pathways and into the bracken, to turn my back on the finger post and tumble into the weeds. Running has changed me so completely that now, even the sight of a landscape painting instills in me a deep desire to step into the frame and beyond it, to run toward the horizon, feeling the cool grass beneath my feet and be gone. Right, so that was uh, the, uh, some of the introduction.
Um, I'm going to talk you through the structure of the book. It's basically split up into four sections. Um, the first is about the, uh, the body and the idea that our bodies are intelligent and have knowledges that we don't always have access to. So there's a section um, about literally about biomechanics and there's, and there's a, um, another chapter about uh, neuroscience. That was, that was quite a steep research struggle for me. Um, there's also uh, the second section uh, the, so the, the first section is about the body the second section is about the, about the mind the third section is about place how environments have a, a huge impact on what we do and what happens when we run which is what this section is from and then the final section is about uh, freedom and there's a chapter about things like um, uh, laws of trespass and there's a section about um, Ruskin and Creativity and the idea of creativity as a as a kind of uh, freedom as well. So the key figures in the book are the, obviously the main thing is running and the body, but the the, the people that I keep brushing up against in the book are, are figures like um, like uh, uh, Ruskin. Uh, there's a whole section about uh, Coleridge in the Lake District. I started off and make a terrible parent. I started off much preferring Wordsworth out of Wordsworth and Coleridge and then uh, shifted my allegiance to Coleridge as I, as I was uh, writing about him. So uh, Coleridge, Ruskin, uh, Hazlitt. Hazlitt is, a, is sort of a new one on me, really. I had no idea what a great writer he was about, um, about movement in particular. He wrote a fantastic essay about uh, walking, which I've never seen in any of the um, anthologies, uh, but it's called Ongoing, um, Ongoing a Journey. It's terrific. And then there's the other character who comes up, there's at least three sections about him, which is Thomas Hardy. And although this uh, chapter is about um, Oscar Wilde, um, uh, Hardy ended up taking control of it. Um, but we'll get, to, we'll get to Hardy in, in, in good time. Um, okay, so the chapter about the uh, treadmill... Um, starts off with a, 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 a just a sort of odd reflection, really, which was a, a run that I was doing in, of all places, of Greenwich Park. And it was that summer, um, it's a long time ago, that summer 2012, where it just rained and rained and rained and rained and rained and rained. Um, so uh, in 2012, running in Greenwich Park, and the, it was absolutely deserted, and then there was this incredible electrical uh, rainstorm. And as I uh, ran, uh, the, the rain, uh, it was like being stung by bees. The rain was falling so hard against my shirt. And my shirt was sort of pendulous as I ran. Um, it, was, it was, I mean, it, it sounds awful, but there was, there was, something, there was something electric about it. Um, and uh, so that idea of why was this better? Why was this better than being dry and warm? that being out, wet, cold, freezing, and in a little bit of danger, being around trees, why was this better than being inside? <coughs> so um, I then um, start to talk about um, the idea of gyms and treadmills. Gyms and treadmills, it seems to me, are just uh, the easiest target. Um, they're too easy to write about, really. It's so easy to be rude about them. Um, so the chapter had to go through about four drafts because every time I did it I just kept sort of being really sweeping and dismissive and I wasn't giving it a sort of uh, a fair go um, so there is still a bit of that in here I do apologise <clears throat> 
But one thing that I wanted to do was sort of recover the genealogy of the of the treadmill, and um, uh, so I sort of went back in time. And uh, the, the most natural stopping point was the 18th century. Don't worry, I'm going to go through this, this bit quite quickly. The most natural stopping point was the 18th century, um, which was uh, the period of the uh, Enlightenment, where. Um, uh, that seemed to have so much impact all over Europe, but maybe less so in um, England. There was a really vibrant and real Scottish Enlightenment. I'm just not sure that there was an, there was an English one, really. There's no English Enlightenment literature as such. Not, you know, not compared with like Voltaire and Montesquieu and, and what have you. So around the Enlightenment, one of the, thing, one of the ways in which um, there was an English Enlightenment was it was following an Italian tradition of um, prison reform um, brought about by a chap called Cesare Beccaria, who in 1764 published a treatise on crimes and punishments, which um, was basically absolutely terrific. It's, it's completely fascinating, beautifully written and well executed. But he was basically saying, don't, don't kill people for crimes because it's bad, it's bad for them, um, and it's really, really, really bad for, for us as a society as well. It's a great, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderfully sophisticated and nuanced argument. So this idea of penal reform, of prison reform, sort of um, uh, uh, filtered out across Europe. Beccaria was really, really influential, and then, of course, um, one of the figures whom he influenced in England was John Howard from the, the Howard Prison Reform League. So prisons, prisons were, were just a mess in the 18th century. Um, uh, they were privatised, which meant that you could be sent to prison. You would accrue a debt while you were in prison because you had to pay for your keep. And then when it got to the end of your term, you may not be let out unless you could pay the debt for your keep. So it's a completely absurd situation that you'd be imprisoned for, for um, the debt of not being able to, to uh, pay your way out of prison. So uh, prisons were... Um, among many things, there was this idea that, that prison needed, needed to be overhauled, the whole system needed to be overhauled, so that it would become effective. <coughs> uh, and this um, uh, uh, brought about several reforms. Um, uh, uh, there, was, there were bills passed, uh, treaties were written, um, prisons were supposed to be uh, a real and vi- viable option beyond, um, other, uh, other than the death penalty... So there's prison or the death penalty, and there's quite a sort of gap between those two things. Um, uh, and uh, transportation, and transportation was becoming much more difficult after the American War of, uh, of Independence in 1776, was it? Thereabouts. Thereabouts, thank you very much. Um, so uh, prisons needed to be overhauled, they needed to be nationalised, and uh, they needed to be... Um, um, uh, all brought up to the same very low standard. Um, so I was going to read a bit about this, but actually I'm going to skip through it just so that I don't miss any bits. So the idea was that, that prison, that the uh, philosophy behind um, um, sending people to prison was sort of shifting from physical punishment through to mental punishment. The idea that um, uh, people should be given uniforms not only to make it difficult for them to escape from prison but uniforms that would humiliate them that would be disgraceful to wear so whereas um, the, in the longer history of, of, of um, discipline and, and punishment uh, there had been things like thumbscrewing and hanging uh, these were all very much bodily punishments so punishment was becoming something that was more um, that was more mental um, 
Throughout the Victorian period, the accentuation of the servile and useless aspect of of prisoners' labour became more focused. So the idea of prisoners having to work for no reason um, had been exercised in the 18th century. In 1817, Sir William Cubitt, a civil engineer from Norfolk, proposed a solution to the Penitentiary Act requirements. One of the principal difficulties was that uh, prison labour at the time could not be seen to be taking work from the innocent and from the free. Hard labour had to be found, but of a kind that no free person would willingly subject themselves to. William Cubitt's invention was called the treadwheel. Some called it the discipline mill, but soon after it came to be known as the treadmill. In the effervescence of invention during this period, the monthly magazine announced in 1797 a new patent for Francis Lowne's Gymnasticon, the earliest of static exercise machines. Okay, so, um, first of all, whoever picked out this picture to illustrate my running talk, thank you very much. (laughs) It's not quite how I look when I I run. This, this is, I love this, this is um, the Gymnasticon. This is is a, a static exercise machine. Um, invented by, um, by Francis Lowndes. So this is uh, the magazine explained that it may be of use when uh, um, peculiar or sedentary occupations, i.e. most of our occupations now, today, enforce confinement to the house, uh, like most academics. It promises to be equally successful to the healthy as to the sick. The merchant, without withdrawing his attention from his accounts, and the student... This is what all students should be doing. And the student, while occupied in writing or reading, may have his lower limbs kept in constant motion by the slightest exertion or the assistance of a child. So can you see the handle on the lower spindle? The idea is that you employ a child so that you don't have to exert yourself and your feet can just move around without any effort at all. Um, Though it would not look completely out of place in in the many thousands of gyms throughout the world today, the gymnasticum was a commercial disaster. Unsurprisingly, it disappeared from history until the invention of electricity could bring it back as the cross-trainer. But surely its existence went some way to contributing to the technological refinements that the treadwheel would undergo in the 19th century. So, throughout the 19th century, prisoners of Her Majesty, for they had moved out of the private sector, who had committed the most serious of crimes, were put to hard labour. There were comparatively few crimes that, that warranted the death penalty. Um, uh, numerous hard labourers uh, were put to work on the treadwheel. treadwheel. Cubit's early design resembled a large cylinder that 10 to 20 men could climb on uh, together and operate like a widened water wheel in cooperation with one another. In Foucauldian terms, the treadwheel punished the body by the hard nature of the endless and importantly <laughs> useless climb. The treadmill made f- frequent appearances in the literature of the 19th century. It features in Dickens's work, in his letters, his essays, his short fiction, and in many of his novels, The Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, The Old Curiosity Shop, A Christmas Carol, Dombey and Son, Bleak House, Little Dorrit. In Anthony Trollope's The Eustace Diamonds, Mrs Carbuncle explains to our heroine, it is my belief that they can keep you upon the treadmill and bread and water for months and months, if not for years. But as the century progressed, the the treadwheel was fine-tuned and weaponised to encompass more directed forms of psychological punishment beyond that of the prisoner's humiliating clothes. Several refinements were made, 
What had begun the, the century as a gruelling physical experience became one that tor- tortured the prisoner, body and soul, leaving many destroyed by their feet of endurance. So it was a, it was a rather precarious invention. It was like a widened water wheel, uh, but the men um, who worked it could at least be on it together and they could, they could talk to one another and they could see uh, one another and there was a, a, sense of, a sense, at least, of shared labour, uh, the shared labour of movement. But this was to change. In 1885, when the Criminal Law Amendment Act was passed by Parliament, the main goal was to raise the age of consent from girls, uh, uh, for girls from 13 to 16 to clamp down on London's epidemic of child prostitution. It also outlawed sexual acts of unspecified gross indecency between men. Its most famous victim is Oscar Wilde. He underwent three trials in 1895, the first brought by um, Wilde himself, a libel action against the Marcus of Queensbury, his lover's father. The second, a criminal trial that ended in a hung jury, and the third, another trial, this time resulting in a conviction. In sentencing, Justice Wills remarked, quote, I shall, under the circumstances, be expected to pass the severest sentence that the law allows. In my judgment, it is totally inadequate for a case such as this. The sentence of the court is that, omission, uh, you be imprisoned and kept to hard labour for two years. In his essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, written four years earlier, Wilde could not have been more tragically wrong in his assessment of the imprisoned life, where he believed, quote, a man can be quite free, his soul can be free, his personality can be untroubled, he can be at peace. Wilde was first sent to Pentonville Prison and then to Wandsworth and finally to Reading. His health declined swiftly when put to hard labour. In his first year he collapsed and spent two months in the infirmary. In his biography, Richard Elman explains that Wilde was unfortunate in that his spell inside just preceded a wave of penal reforms at the end of the century. He worked the treadmill for as much as six hours a day. Documented by the prison chaplain, Um, by the prison chaplain. Uh, The account of Wilde's punishment makes for harrowing reading. So this is a a quote from the prison chaplain. It's horrible. When he first came down here, he was in in an excited and flurried condition and seemed as if he wished to face his punishment without flinching. But all this has passed away. As soon as the excitement aroused by his trial subsided, his fortitude began to give way and rapidly collapsed altogether. He is now quite crushed and broken, and I fear, from what I hear and see, that perverse sexual practices are again getting the mastery over him. The odour of his cell is now so bad that the officer in charge of him has to use carbolic acid in it every day. I need hardly tell you that he is a man of decidedly morbid disposition. In fact, some of our most experienced officers openly say that they don't think he will be able to go through the two years. End quote. The chaplain and officers were not far, far wrong. Wilde's time on the treadmill all but destroyed him. If the chaplain is to be believed, it led first to depression, then to addictive masturbation, and finally to life-threatening exhaustion. He was later transferred to Reading Jail, and there the conditions for him improved a little. He was given access to pen and paper, and the regimen was not so severe. During his time, he drafted The Ballad of Reading Jail, published anonymously under his cell door number C33. We sewed the sacks, we broke the stones, and we turned the dusty drill. 
We banged the tins and bawled the hymns and sweated on the mill, but in the heart of every man terror was lying still. Wilde did make it through his two years, but only just. He never fully recovered and died in exile and infamy only a couple of years after his release at the age of 46. How could it be possible to feel good about running on a treadmill? It was, after all, once the principal tool of punishment in Her Majesty's prisons, now we pay for the privilege of running on them. (coughs) So, uh, yeah, I then segue into um, a bit about where I'm sort of slightly rude about gyms. So I go to meet someone, uh, I go to meet two people in fact, um, uh, some geographers, human geographers at UCL, uh, Alan Latham and Russell Hitchings, who who do some great work. And they've just done a study uh, where they were investigating people's exercise habits and their adherence to those habits. Um, And they uh, uh, interviewed people who were regular outdoor runners and people who were regular indoor runners. And what they found was that everybody, all of the runners, shared um, their same sense of what a, a good quality run was. So being in a park or running by the Thames side. Or something like that, but the, the, the difference was was that the treadmill runners <coughs> were reluctant to reflect on why they did what they did. They just wanted to get on with doing what they did. And um, there was a sense in which they were outsourcing. Uh, they didn't quite trust themselves to uh, complete their exercise uh, regime without a machine to outsource that responsibility to. So the, the treadmill um, uh, users could get onto the machine, um, punch in 30 minutes... And they just ran until the 30 minutes stopped. And only when they became injured would they actually start to think actively about what they were doing. So because we're academics, or because most of us here are academics, we're always assuming that um, people are always reflecting and thinking about what they're doing. But this is, this is not so. Um, for me, I think one of the big problems with treadmills is the amnesia, um, which is that you run on them and you... You, you know that you've run on them, but, but I have no memory of them. And I, can, I have in my head, I've, I've never counted it up, but it's probably not hundreds, that's probably an exaggeration. But I'd say it's probably up to, if not more than 100 runs, um, that, I, that are, uh, they're, they're a part of who I am. And I don't think I could, it's possible, it'd be possible for me to ever forget them. And treadmill runs, because they're all so similar, they can't adhere, um, uh, they can't be consolidated into... Um, the biology of memory in, in, the, in the same way. So that's one of my concerns, is that they, they're just too similar. Um, and um, Leslie Stephen did an essay on walking and um, oblivion that's wonderful on this, that the idea that you need to recover, you need to recover uh, your life um, and not just let it happen. Uh, Walter Pater as well, who I'm not going to read from, but he's in this chapter, where he talks about... Um, not to live every moment uh, uh, exquisitely is, is like a sleep before evening. <clears throat> so I'm going to read you a little bit about the anthropology of the. I'll be doing for time, fine. Um, uh, about the anthropology of the gym for about five minutes, and there's another five minute reading after that, and then we're done. During the 19th century, the design of the prisoner's treadmill changed. To refine the effect of sensory limitation, panels were installed between the prisoners so that their stalls resembled a voting booth. They could no longer see or talk to one another, 
so they could contemplate their crimes in bare isolation and without distraction. With this small change, the process of working a treadmill became one that was about absolute institutional power being being brought to bear upon the psychology of the prisoner. While the modern treadmill may seem much more like an activity characterised by fun and freedom rather than imprisonment, the two things are only as different as, say, a bike and a motorbike. (coughs) In the gyms I've been to, um, with with their lines of TV screens... um, Uh, Sorry. In the gyms I've been to with their lines of TV screens, they usually um, played a selection of news, sports, adverts and soap operas. The screens were usually muted, but you could plug in in your headphones if you wanted to listen. In the past, as a consumer of this experience, was I quite innocently being provided with a bit of entertainment for my run? Or might something else have been going on? Sociologists, ethnographers and anthropologists are interested in gyms because they are, they are a sandpit for the peculiarities of our social engagement. We behave so oddly in them, whether it is the eccentricities of membership structures, changing room etiquette. I witnessed the amazing sight of a man counting the muscles in his six-pack last week. That's, that's true. That really is true. He was, he was up to five when I walked in the toilet. Responses or responses to arbitrary rules and regulations or the ways in which privacy works. Irving Goffman, in Behaviour in Public Places, asks why it is that when we are walking down the street and meet a stranger's eyes, we immediately feel the need to avert our gaze. He suggests that the reason that we look away with such rapidity is that we instinctively want to be complicit in creating an illusion. When we are in public, we like to pretend we are in private. As a species, we mostly live in the discordant environment of the city. You'd know that what that was if, if you'd read the book. Um, a place that presents us with uh, far more faces than we are built to register. <coughs> Excuse me. Neither, it seems, are we particularly attuned to being in places where we do not know other people. And treadmills and gyms are tied up with all of these complexes. What I think is that treadmills and their organisation in these gyms have a similar effect that the separator panels did for the prisoners of Her Majesty. In the complex public space of the gym, if Goffman is correct, it would be unusual to catch someone else's eye. Um, Nice tank tops. Um, In the complex public space of the gym, if Goffman is correct, it would be unusual to catch someone else's eye. I'm sure that somewhere love has blossomed between the Russian rubber belts and strong friendships have been forged on those stain-proof carpets. But while it took me a while to learn that the etiquette is, uh, is identical to the rules of social engagement at men's urinals, eyes forward, concentrated silence, always choose the vacant space farthest from the one that is occupied, no talking, no farting, no looking. Gyms are public spaces. They have to be to generate profit. But when I'm in them, I feel strongly like they want me to feel like I'm somewhere private. (coughs) Businesses, institutions and other structures constantly try to predetermine and shape our behaviour as consumers, subjects or citizens. And I believe that gyms are no different. I feel persuaded into thinking that privacy is my right in such places. I also feel that it presumes I want to avoid social engagement. But even the hard labour prisoners of the 18th and 19th centuries were permitted to think while they worked their mills. The gantry of TVs and the music of the modern gym assumed that thought is not desired. 
It reminds me of a George Orwell essay from 1946. It's never going to be good when you bring in George Orwell, is it? It reminds me of a George Orwell essay from 1946 in which he attacks with horror the idea of the new pleasure resort. Um, He's sort of having a go at things like centre parks. Orwell was suspicious of the fact that the modern construction of pleasure involved never being alone, never doing things yourself, never seeing or hearing anything natural, being in an artificially temperate surroundings and never being out of earshot of music. It was difficult for him not to conclude that such environments functioned as a return to the womb, being without daylight, with a regulated temperature, without work, and where thought, if it were possible, would be drowned out among the thuds and thumps of the mother's body. The gym's pulsating techno seems a poor substitution for the maternal heartbeat. Yet, even with so many reasons to avoid treadmills, for years, I used them and paid a high price. For me, it was the drive through window of exercise, fast, forgettable, futile. And I think William Cubitt's invention of the treadmill is such an enduring success because it continues to do what it was always designed to do, which is to block out experience. So I've got two very short sections left, which is about six minutes in total. Um, one of the things that I struggled with early on in writing the book was um, the uh, why was it what was the connection between running and 19th century fiction even even to say it now it seems so ridiculous because there is no running there is no running in 19th century fiction <coughs> people occasionally run away from other people but nobody actually goes out for a jog anywhere ever <laughs> um, there are some there are running races in their periodicals I talk about the, and the invention of the running shoe which people think was the 1960s but it looks to have been about the 1820s but nowhere is it in the fiction and um, people at sort of any conference where I talk about running people would always come up to me and tell me about such and such a person in far from the madding crowd who runs home and can't breathe and it would be just sort of like <coughs> um, but uh, one of the one of the nice things about writing is actually just before I, I talk about this bit, I talk about the similarities between running and reading. Again, two things that you wouldn't necessarily draw together. And I wrote, I wrote pages, I wrote pages of pretentious page of prose, talking, drawing all, all of these connections between uh, running and reading. And the whole thing got, I, I threw out the whole thing, and it went back down to about five lines. Over the years, I've also mulled over how similar running can be to something like reading, from the physiology of the horizontal eye scan, uh, where the fixations are the footfalls and the cicades are the flight, to the similar levels of focus and absorption and the marsupial collection and organisation of knowledge, to the syntaxes and story arcs of a good run. That was a lot better than the five pages I had on it. Um, but this last, this last, last section... Um, uh, in the argument that I'm presenting is, is that the, it starts off with this terrible um, lightning bolt um, and uh, the preference to being in danger than being in, um, being in gyms. And then at the end of the run, I go outside um, again. And this time it was a, um, a sort of a pilgrimage run, uh, which started off at a place called St. Juliet, um, which was where Thomas Hardy um, first met his wife, Emma Gifford, um, and it was really to run that whole coastline that became um, so important for his uh, some of his fiction, but also for many of his poems and many of the best ones, in fact. So, our man Thomas Hardy was always pioneering new ways of letting the outside in, 
of bringing the natural world to our attention and imagination. He knew the impact of the environment and he spent a life in writing trying to make sense of it and to understand how it is tied up with our emotions and our well-being. It may seem odd to bring Hardy together with running like this, and it is something I've struggled to explain in the past, but as I slip and stumble along the cliff paths that he walked hundreds of feet above the crashing Atlantic, I am about to discover that in his writing, so unyielding and real in the way that it brings the world into focus, there is only a mole's whisker between what's on the page and what's in the world. The frictive immediacy of the engagement with the environment that I derive from real running, not on a treadmill, but real outside running, as I grab at tussocks to stop myself slipping into an inlet, is matched on the page by Hardy's instinct to notice, reframe and describe the world. Running has the potential to be a deeply immersive activity, and of all the poets and novelists I've ever read, Hardy's writing is the most similar in its immersive qualities. It is not surprising that the places that he loved are such impressive environments. They are places that, once experienced, become impossible to forget. I have come to one of those places today. I have meandered along the roads of North Cornwall to find a tiny hamlet called St Juliet, so remote that I don't remember having seen a single road sign for it. I have parked under the outreaching branches of an old oak tree, probably, quote, springing from a seed dropped by some bird a hundred years ago. That's from Hardy's first poem in Domicilium. Here there are a few houses, outbuildings, and a thousand-year-old church. I then go on um, what I think is a very, very long run, um, taking in places like Boscastle and Beanie Cliff that Hardy wrote about. I also talk about uh, one, of, one of his novels, uh, A Pair of Blue Eyes, which has a fantastic scene that everybody remembers. The word, um, the term cliffhanger was invented for it uh, because a guy falls off a cliff, hangs on, and then the chapter ends and they had to wait for the next instalment to find out what was going to happen. But in this moment, as, as he's clinging on to these tussocks for dear life, um, his eyes uh, look into the rock in front of him and he sees staring back at him uh, a calcified trilobite fossil and there's this sort of wonderful deep time connection that he realises, ah, this is my fate. Um, so I'm going to skip the run, and then this last bit is just a few minutes. So at the end of the run, um, by the time I arrive at Tintagel, my legs are shaking. I know how 20 miles feels, and I'm shocked to see that I've covered only eight. I later work out that I've been running 12-minute miles. These are the sorts of times politicians manage in marathons. The rugged passion of the place has defeated me completely. It all seems so very, very far from the treadmill. Many figures have questioned the real cost of modern life, from the romantics through to the postmodernists, and Thomas Hardy is certainly one of the most consistent sceptics. But Hardy is not simply a soppy romanticist who believes that we can return to nature. His work frequently reminds us of the embodiedness of being, that our consciousness is not a byproduct of the body, but is in it and entwined with it. His lyric poetry frequently saunters a similar, similarly romantic path, how the moral and social order of society exhausts us because it is so unnaturally organised around social institutions. It's what most of his um, tragic fiction is about, the mismatch between the desires of the body and, and society. For the last 200 years, thinkers have had a go at the sort of idealism that wants to get around this problem. You can't go back to nature, they say. Where would that be? When would it be? And does it even exist? But you don't have to go back in time. After you run a long distance, usually the first thing you want is a big glass of water. 
The pleasure and satisfaction this brings is short-lived. Once you feel your stomach start to bloat uh, with all the water, then the gratification begins to subside. But this is not the end of the water. It is about to go to work in every cell of your body, helping it to repair and get your system back online. The benefits have far greater longevity than the initial quenching of a thirst. And just as the efforts of that glass of water go on long after the last gulp, the effects of that glass of water go on long after the last gulp. So authors such as Wolfe, Edward Thomas, Coleridge, Wordsworth, Clare and countless others have understood that the benefits of spending time in a natural environment persist even when one is back in the city. We cannot attain freedom from cities, work, responsibilities and civilization. But for Hardy, it is always within touching distance. This from an extraordinary 1896 poem, Wessex Heights. There are some heights in Wessex shaped as if by a kindly hand for thinking, dreaming, dying, dying on. And at crisis when I stand, say, on Ingpen Beacon eastward or on Wildsnet westwardly, I seem where I was before my birth and after death, maybe. Down there, I seem to be false to myself, my simple self that was and is not now. And I see him watching, wondering what crass cause can have merged him into such a strange continuator as this, who yet has something in common with himself, my chrysalis. <coughs> Hardy's spidery long lines ramble on so extensively that they rarely fit a standard page width. And just for reference, they don't fit the page. Um, they, fairly fit, they rarely fit a standard page width. These are thoughts permitted space to roam free. If Edward Thomas was a shark that needed to stay in constant motion, Hardy was a whale that climbed the heights to come up for a blast of air and then returned, renewed, to the depths of civilization. Hardy's heights become for him a place of rapturous emptiness. Hardy succeeded in dragging himself from the enclosed confines out of the tunnel and onto the hilltop, out of the prison of civilization and language to become something animal and new. With words long gone, barriers begin to break down and the biology of the body comes into its own, reminding you that it is a soft machine. It is the thing that you're running with and through. Words and names only seem to get in the way. Indeed, one of the problems with the way that we relate to nature is that we insist on calling it that. Nature is something out there. Our identity and our relationship to it dictates to some extent our inability to see through it. Um, uh, this bit's talking about a, 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 a very long run that I did of, of like two hours plus where I ended up in a, in, a, in a woods somewhere in South London. On that long run in the woods when I lost my head, the hypnotic spell of the endless rhythm of my feet and my breath pared away at me until, like the smooth steps at some holy shrine worn down by the passing thousands, I had gone completely and only my body was left. Clipped observations occasionally broke in. If the soil weren't so wet, it would look seared. It folds and rolls away toward a leaden sky. The cut wheat, like graying stubble, slowly dying on the sagging jaw of a corpse. But soon, even those thoughts sunk and I floated out of life into my little death. A place where you find peace and can drop out of the world and live for a time with the sentience of an animal. Breath comes in goes out, in, out, hundreds, thousands, all the same. The sun shines, the air warms and chills, leaves fall, breath comes in and out, 
the sky, the scored canopy of the wood, the jackdaws in the field, the mud underfoot, breath in and out. Language is no use when there is no one to speak to or signs to read. As Hardy says of his Wessex Heights, mind chains do not clank where one's next neighbour is the sky. In the conclusion to that poem, Hardy saw these moments as forms of escape from a life he found hard. All of what he is trying to say is there in the last five words of the poem. So I am found on Ingpen Beacon or Will's Neck to the west, or else on Homely Bullbarrow or Little Pilston Crest, where men have never cared to haunt, nor women have walked with me, and ghosts then keep their distance, and I know some liberty. The gym and the treadmill seem from a different planet. Real long runs in these sorts of wild open spaces have a potent, even hallucinatory appeal that can provide escape from sense, logic, everything. They are a rest from life itself. They can be like the gym on acid. That's one of those sentences. <coughs> Sorry, I talked about there's a few sentences in here that I hate. Um, running puts us unquestionably here, emphatically now. The treadmill is running enframed, an experience that's pared back, removed from its meaning and context. It is the paper coffee cup of running. Years ago, when I first blogged about the treadmill, I said that I wasn't at all sure what I was doing when I got on one. Now I'm more confident and think that if you exercise on a treadmill, you are effectively minimising, shrinking and refining all the benefits that you might otherwise gain from running. It is the junk food of exercise. If you want to rescue some of your life from oblivion, Stay off the treadmill so that you may remember some of what you would otherwise forget. Thank you.